Welcome to the On-Premise IT Roundtable podcast, the only show that dares to be both on topic and typically on location. Each time we meet, we bring together a group of IT luminaries to discuss a single concept. In this episode, we're tackling open source business models or the lack thereof. But before we begin, let's meet our panel. Hi, I'm Alex, the founder of OpenFAS and Inlets, and I'm also a CNCF ambassador in my spare time. Hey, I'm Larry Smith. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Ellie Smith JR. I am a senior DevOps engineer and automation architect, whatever, whatever. Um, and I'm a huge fan of open source. So this conversation is going to be a lot of fun. So my name is Calvin Hendricks Parker. I am CTO and co-founder of a Python and cloud consulting company called Six Feet Up based out of the Midwest. Uh, also a huge fan of open source. I've been involved in open source governance uh, for projects such as the Plone Foundation. So I'm, I'm excited to, to talk further. Hi, I'm Atra Vig. Um, I'm an enterprise solution architect with Rackspace Limited. Been around for a bit, for 25 years or so in IT. Mainly deal with infrastructure. So it's an interesting topic for me as well. Hi, my name is Joop. Uh, find me on Twitter at JPSCAR. Uh, open source is uh, something I enjoy looking at from afar. Uh, and also, you know, sometimes a little closer. So let's dive into it. So I've been in, involved in this uh, IT space for a long time. I got the gray hairs to prove it. Um, you know, I was one of the people that got uh, Linus Torvalds' message about his uh, new invention uh, oh so many years ago and tried it out in uh, when I was back in, in college. And uh, ever since then, um, I've been watching this whole thing. There's the push and pull between free as in speech and free as in beer. There's the open source business model and all these companies that have tried to come up with an open source business model that's doable. Um, you know, I think that the, the gold standard is Red Hat, which is now IBM, I think. And um, frankly, uh, not everyone can be Red Hat. In fact, what we found over the last 20 years is not anyone can be Red Hat except Red Hat. So um, what is the business model for open source? And that's one of the things that I wanna to put to this panel and especially to Alex, because Alex Ellis, you are actually responsible for two wonderful open source projects that I've got a super open source project crush on, um, you know, OpenFAS and Inlets. And um, what is the current state of affairs when it comes to business models for open source projects? Yeah, I think that really got to start by looking at how have we done this up to now. And there's four main ways that people contribute to open source. The first way is the most popular, most widespread, which is as a side gig. You have a, a well-paying job, you're a cloud architect somewhere perhaps, or, or, or an engineer designer. You've got this time when you get home and you do a bit of work on the side. You maybe you contribute to OpenFAS, you write a guest blog. It, it gives you a taste. Um, if you get too far into that, it can start to feel like a second job, or it can actually, as in my experience of open source originally, it can make you feel like more satisfied in a job that maybe doesn't stretch you that much. And, and we do see that quite a lot in the community. The second one is you, um, you get hired by a company. VMware does this a lot, AWS do it as well, because they have an interest in a project. They want more influence in Kubernetes. They need more seats in a in a vote. Um, and yeah, I think somewhere like VMware has, has got like almost the most Kubernetes engineers after, after somewhere like Google working for them. And their job is usually work on upstream. And so that's the way of working full time. But you've got all of that entrenchment of being in a company. You don't get to work on what you want. 
Um, but maybe it's a bit of a halfway house. Now, if you look at, at Docker that was in the news recently about the Docker Hub, they have this, this uh, way of, well, we'll do everything for free. We'll figure out a business model later on. Minio seem to be taking a similar approach. And actually, um, that's kind of a mix of what I did, except those companies had a lot of VC funding to back that up and to grow it. Finally, where I am today, the last 18 months, I've been building a software and consulting company and trying to find a way to actually fund this. Because if you've not got daddy IBM paying your wages, um, you've got to do that yourself. And so I'm, I'm consulting on brand, on cloud and all sorts of things. And then some companies also had success with SaaS, right? So they operate it for you, but that then does involve some closed source pieces. And that's where that's a good summary, I think, of, of what is available today and what we've already been trying. Yeah, I appreciate that because um, you're in an unusual position of having worked in a variety or a number of these different, uh, you know, kind of business models and trying to make them work. And I think that, um, you know, this has been the challenge for open source projects. Um, you know, let's, I'm going to throw it to Larry next. I mean, you're uh, kind of on the user side of these things. What has been your experience trying to use these things and trying to, I don't know, give money to somebody? Alex brings up a lot of good points, right? And this is something that is, it's painful, not even from a user, but let's take it from the user perspective first. Being that I've, I've been a huge fan of open source and consumed it for 20 plus years, I think I might have approached it different than most users because I think most users of consumers of open source, they just say, it's oh, it's free, it's open source, it's blah, 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 I can use it. But damn it, if it breaks, I'm going to raise hell. I'm going to go to the project page. I'm going to flame them with um, things are broke, but I'm not going to contribute back to make it better or to help out. Um, I think that's one thing that is, is you see over time. That's a huge problem. The other part of it is, is I think you have another set of, of, of users that may be in a company that are themselves want to try to, monetize off of what others are doing, if that makes sense. So I think there's a lot of business opportunity there, but at the end of the day, you really should reach out to someone like Alex and, and get a partner engagement so you can help fund him and what he's putting his work into. And then the last part I wanna add um, is that myself, that I contribute a ton around I mostly Ansible, so automation, things like that, but also I have Python projects and things like that, that I contribute to GitHub and I've been doing it for years. And and I, I get zero out of that. I don't get any funding or anything like that. Um, and I'm cool with that. But what I rely on is the feedback to make sure that things move along good and, and et cetera. But I've been in the scenario of, Hey, we're using your stuff and you don't know this until you're, you're, you run into an issue. And we talked about this earlier on the other podcast. And this is where Alex was going is that like Travis CI. So if you get these integrations and you get the dependabot that finds a vulnerability and you get spam. So all these builds are kicking off, but what you find out is that, Hey, something has broken the build and you get flamed again because you find out that, Hey, a massive organization, somebody like a red hat, an EMC or someone like that is using your code. And the next thing you know, you're getting hit up and they're like, Hey, why doesn't this work anymore? So it's, it's, I've seen it from every area. Um, so 
I'll add that for now. Yeah, I was going to chime in on the, the bit with the, the open source models. And there's some subtleties in there in the ways I've used open source and the way I've participated in open source projects in the past is that there's also good open source projects that have foundations. I think you'd mentioned that there's like open source projects may get an engineer from a company. But I think what's more important is if an open source project gets a foundation and then there's a vehicle for participating in governance, participating in code, donating money. And then there's actually a way to, for organizations to officially give back into those groups that I think if you're just a solo code or code person, you don't have a, a governance model, a, a big enterprise is going to have a hard time, you know, just getting thousands of dollars your way uh, in an easy fashion. Uh, they need a vehicle or a mechanism to do it. And they need to know that there's some kind of protections around the IP and the license and, and all these other things. So the, the ways I've participated in the past have been, you know, serving on the boards of these open source foundations, <clears throat> obviously contributing code back into these various projects and not being one of these complainers who just flames the issue board, but uh, I make concerted efforts to put in a pull request with tests uh, and documentation uh, because that's being like a good open source citizen. Now, how do you encourage those kinds of good behaviors? Now, I know it's not kind of the main premise, which is how do we make money with open source, but I think we're talking about how do we keep open source sustainable so we can still have the nice things uh, and benefit from it, uh, you know, as a, as a, a global group of, of awesome projects and people. So I'll, I'll take a slightly different perspective on this. Like I, I used to work at an end user organization, a supermarket, where, you know, we used open source left and right. But we didn't use open source software to, because, you know, we had, you know, a, a conviction that we had to or we needed to. It was just whatever was easiest, the lowest friction for our developers to start using. That's what we used. Right. The if we could prevent having a developer go into the purchasing department and having to figure out how to actually purchase this piece of software, if we could prevent that, you know, that was better developer productivity. And I'm kind of, you know, making the situation worse than it was in reality, of course. But I see open source being kind of used in those scenarios and kind of a as a misnomer for your own internal bureaucracy that, you know, it, it I think it's good to separate, you know, open source from a consumer perspective. Like I'm a developer for a company, I need to solve my problem. I'll have a preference for open source, mostly because it's free. And then I'll, you know, the other perspective is the open source community having a convic conviction that open source is actually better for all of us, right? The, the greater good. Um, and I, th I think, and I'm, I'm curious as to what you think about this, that these two perspectives are being intermingled and mixed all the time making it a very hard discussion to, you know, basically get anywhere. Yeah, I think, I think my perspective again is, is a similar one that open source um, is for the greater good. And yeah, obviously whenever people start contributing to that, um, that, that is out, born out of love basically. And, you know, love of the community, love of the development side of things, um, which is why most of those projects start in that way. Now, it's human nature, however. First of all, one has to feed themselves and the family. Um, so there is only so much that you can do with that. And as a hobby, you can actually sustain it. But how do you then build a system which will then be backed by or adopted by, first of all, all the developers, and then be sustainable to be able to support it long term? And then we talked about Red Hat, obviously, who have famously made that model work. But there has to be some sort of a financial 
um, subscription or something like that. Now, some companies actually do that. So their pro, oh, sorry, free version will be less feature rich. Um, and then as you go further uh, and it, it becomes more supported options become available with payment. And, but to, first of all, you have to get to that level of um, say spread uh, or, or companies start using it. There has to be a critical mass before you can start doing those kind of things. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's just that you need a bigger group of people to be able to start and to get to that point where you can offer subscriptions. And usage of technology becomes more common before you can do that. So it becomes a chicken and egg problem, I think. And that's probably the bigger issue. If we move away from open source, for example, and take an example of, say, Facebook, that was start to start with, it was all free. Um, but it didn't really take off until um, it, it started monetizing its services. And then it suddenly grew quite a lot. Same goes for other companies as well. I think Google is pretty much in the same, same situation. It started all free and then they started monetizing. So you have to get to that stage. And I think the problem is this, how do you get to that stage before you can start charging for subscription and make it sustainable and supportable? I, so I, as, as Steve, Stephen said, I've got personal experience with this. Um, here's how I see it as actually having created probably four or five projects with well over a thousand GitHub stars, commercial users, hundreds of blog posts, the works. It starts with scratching an itch. Developer has a problem, has an idea, um, and they scratch the itch enough to write some code. They see that it's useful, they publish it, they get some endorphins from that, they get some GitHub stars, then they start to build a community. Once a community is built up, you see more and more adoption, as, as Atta is saying. That adoption gets to a point where the tool that you've built is way bigger than your capacity to maintain it on the side, right? Um, and then sustaining that becomes very difficult because you're now at a point where commercial companies have built products on top of it. They may be saving or making millions of dollars, but they don't want to give you any of that. Um, with OpenVAS Limited, there is a company there. Um, and we do have a premium subscription, getting more and more interest in that. But it's still difficult for companies to understand that if something's free, why should they pay for it? Right? However, you sort of um, enumerate the benefits of having someone to call of, of if something goes wrong and having influence over the roadmap, they might just be happy um, because it's free. And that's something that I've seen more and more. So with, with Inlets, it came along one of the later projects I built. I said, right, well, um, it started off exactly the same and I was going down the same path of, you know, eventual implosion and I said, okay, well, I want these features. I'm going to build them and I'm going to keep them to myself. And then I made it available for purchase and there's been some interest and you know, a, a bunch of people have, have purchased that and are using it and are quite happy with it. And actually the people that have paid are way less demanding than the people that are using it because it's free. And so I didn't know how to price this. So I went to Red, Redgate, have this book, don't just roll the, the dice of software pricing. And they say that there's, there's this curve. And as you start charging more than $0, you lose a whole bunch of your users that were only using you because you were free. And we're never going to pay for support never going to be a customer and never going to want your help. And it's really just a case of, I think Docker, the Docker Hub is going to see this as well, is once you get more than free, 
you've then got to kind of figure out the pricing. You then get anchored to other products like how is this better than Ngrok or why would I pay you $30 a month when theirs is only 15? And then it's very difficult and it becomes a whole different game. And what it's taught me is that, um, as I've done a lot of reading around businesses and MBAs and, and creating product, is that almost if you want to make it alone and you want to have an element of open source, you almost have to go the opposite way and start from the very beginning with, okay, what's the, what's the product? How many people are willing to pay for that? What are they going to pay for that? And of that amount, is that enough for me to have the lifestyle that I want or to grow the business where I want to grow it? Anything else other than that is, I just don't think is sustainable. And then it will either be done through open core, fully closed source, maybe a SaaS. Um, I know a lot of us have been in the industry a very long time, but over the last five years, I've seen a lot of micro SaaS products jump up. And this is where somebody goes through that mini cycle of figuring out what the product is, experimenting and then selling it. And there's a guy, uh, his, name's, his name's Matthias, he's from Belgium. He's got a newsletter called Chrome Weekly and he has sold something that checks your DNS records. He's making about 8,000 euros a month. Not a lot of money, the way more than I make from OpenVAS and um, from sponsors. And it's all on his own and it's not open source and people love it. Even big companies use it. Right? I had that idea ages ago for DNS insurance. I never mm. seized the opportunity. So I think it, it's not how can we make open source sustainable? Like it's it's the opposite of a business. No CFO in their right mind will tell you, give everything away for free and have no motivation to pay. And it's just taken me um, many years and lots of um, sunk costs to get to the point that I've realized that if you want a company to pay, you have to make them pay. I don't mean that in a bad way, but we've talked about holding features back, um, offering things um, like support, um, offering custom development, unless it's there, they just, it's not going to pay. That's my take on it. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting aspect angle too, is this kind of question. I think that a couple of you guys have gotten to this, this sort of push and pull between, okay, so do we do like a freemium business model where there's like the free version and then if you want the cool features, then you pay? Or is there, um, or do we just give everything away and charge for support? I mean, this gets back to the business models that Alex was talking about at the beginning. And I mean, frankly, you know, you're damned if you're due and you're damned if you're don't, because it, it is a chicken and the egg. If you if you don't give people the cool features unless they pay, then they are not going to use the cool features and then they're not going to become reliant on them and then they're not going to pay. And it's like, but yet at the same time, hello, Alex deserves to pay his rent, right? Yeah, but I think there's good ways to do to handle this. I mean, you mentioned the open core model, which I'm not a big fan of, uh, but mostly because I think a lot of companies do it incorrectly. If you look at something like Alfresco, uh, the open core model of that was you always got a version behind. You never got the latest version of that code. If you wanted any support from any partner Alfresco company, you had to be on a licensed version of, of this Alfresco product versus if you look at SaltStack. Uh, SaltStack was not open core. It was an open, truly open source product. Uh, they offered services and support, and then they had an enterprise version of SaltStack, but the enterprise version of SaltStack had the exact same feature set as the open source version of SaltStack, except they put a GUI control plane, you know, fanciness on top of it. And I think it benefited them and with goodwill with the community, they got lots more open source contributions because there's no way I'm contributing to uh, something where if I was an open source user only, I can't even get my own like commits to this code back because I'm not on the latest version because I didn't pay a license fee. I really prefer to be an open source contributor to your project versus paying. 
for license. So be careful with the open source, open core models. Uh, you know, produce a portion that gives you that value. And I think Alex, you mentioned earlier with your endless project that I really liked the approach you were talking about. I don't know if you wanted to mention that. Yeah. So I mean, it's the first time doing it, and and I say the first time because the the, the actual first time was a an enterprise login SSO for OpenFAS, where rather than using your basic or strategy using SSO and I didn't market it very well. And since I started marketing it as part of a built-in subscription, I had, you know, like a few dozen companies ask about it. But that was my first false start. And my second one was the um was Inlets Pro. Inlets originally was an NGBOC replacement. That was the only thing it was meant to do. And to get you unlimited um exit servers and, and IP addresses and what have you, and to be able to expose your local development environment. I then got to the point where I wanted to expose my ingress controller or, or Nginx and actually have TLS certificates served off my computer in my house. And for that, I needed TCP. I needed 443 and 80 to go out and also wanted SSH, you know, for similar reasons. I thought, well, this is going to take me three weeks to build. And it did. Why should I give away three weeks of engineering time like, to a client? What would that cost on a day rate? Um, and it may never recoup the costs anyway, but I said, no, it's not going to be free. You have a free trial and then you can buy it if you want to. There's a cheap price for individuals like us. And that's mostly where sales have been. Um, and there's a slightly higher price um, per month for companies, but that includes support. So far, you know, it's going pretty well. Um, the, the point that I took was it's TCP or HTTP. And actually, I think I've, I've done it wrong. Because so many people are like, I'm fine with the free one. It is exactly what we need. And so I'm starting to think about, well, what if there was one in between? It's like the free one. It has a bit more. It, you're not paying for stuff that you couldn't do yourself with Caddy or with some other tool, but you've got the convenience. Is the convenience of me saving you three hours of your time worth $200 a year? It should be if you calculate your hourly rate, if you're in IT. But people don't necessarily think that way. Yeah. Yep. Hundred percent. Let me let me add one thing, and from a perspective of of tool versus product, is is the problem because I've I've been a part of these conversations that are similar to this, right? You you build the tool, so we build the tool because and and this is not to take anything away from Alex, but when I listen to this, I'm thinking about inlets and I'm thinking about open FOS and things like that. Are people's is it the perception that this is a tool? Or is this a product? And I think the conversation starts going to the next level is people are not willing to pay for tools, but they're willing to pay for a product. And is it that the product is actually all of the things, let's call it Alex's product. It has all these different tools that are a part of that product. They're willing to pay for the product, but they're not going to pay for each one of those things. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, it's just, this is what I'm hearing, right? I think, you know, I think that does, that makes sense. That's something that, um, that I, that I was told recently, something very similar was, okay, inlets is a technology and now build a product. And that's where I started to build this thing called inlets cloud, because for the companies where the free version is fine for them, they now have to build something to manage that. And they're probably going to run it on Kubernetes because that's just what everyone's doing right now. Well, that's a job and a half, you know, it's going to take you three months, three engineers, think of the cost. Well, we've done it we've tested it and we can give it to you for a fraction of that price. Yeah. And that's where it starts to become a product and it has a REST API auditing. We'll build a small UI on top of it as well and maybe do team login. 
And I think, yeah, you've got a really good point, Larry, about when does a, t- a tool or te- technology become a product? Yeah. And wrapping the the support priority, um, backlog prioritization, and the SSO for OpenVAS into a, into a premium subscription has given me way more inbound leads than here's a bit in the docs if you want to do yeah. open if you want to do SSO you you download this tool and pay for it yeah so yeah I think you yeah you want something and like I think one of the things that you're already doing like you were saying that you know Kubernetes seems to be the thing that people seem to be doing these days for everyone that I think also rings true for any such thing I when you just when when you have a tool of this kind or a set of tools if they can put to be put together to then solve a business problem that everyone seems to be doing or looking for or don't know how to do themselves or can be done easily because of your tool set and that's when you can actually start monetizing on that basis as well saying that you know the basics of that is this which could still be free so that you know people get the hook of it on, on that but then you know, the, the full bigger suite, which then will provide the full functionality of what your vision is, um, that will then bring true with other people as well. And especially the collateral that goes with it saying that, well, this is what the, the business problem is solving. Um, and then obviously people start paying for it. And then obviously it can go up, well, hopefully bigger and better things from there. But I think that's, that's one of the approaches that, you know, in product development, one has to take. Uh, to to be able to effectively monetize it going forward. Yeah, and to add to that real quick, you know, it, it's you know, it's easy for us to sit here and say, yes, we'll pay for a product or it should be a product versus a tool thing. Again, we're talking about Alex <laughs> being a sole developer. This is not something that he can. I mean, he could put a roadmap together, but I mean, you're talking about months and months and months of of work. There's got to be something. So it goes back to the whole whole idea, is the answer to go after VC funding? Do you spend more time on the business plan of what you're really trying to build from a product and be able to string in those different tools with a clear definition of where the end goal is? I, I don't know. You, and if you go for VC funding, what does that do to your project? Does it yes. screw up your project and make it not what you were trying to build? Does it, I mean, exactly. do they even want you to make something that's gonna conquer the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I have this, I have these emails on a pretty regular basis, and sometimes they come in clusters of, um, you know, we're from this this sort of VC company. Are you wanting to build a company? I'm like, yes, I am I'm doing it now. And it's not what they mean. They they mean, do you want to take take the VC money? And it is it is something that will result in the ability to hire people and pay them and, and drive a vision. I'm actually reading Getting Real by by Basecamp at the moment. Um, the guys behind uh, Ruby on Rails and, and other stuff like that. It is refreshing. It's the opposite. It's it, it's not even about open source. It says start small, stay as small as you can, um, only hire when you're in real pain, and that you only need three people to develop a product like the first version. And the more I read it, the more it aligns with like what I want to do. Now, if we land a couple of big consulting projects, I'll, there's a couple of people I want to hire and that will get us up to three pretty quickly and i'm pretty sure that this that will happen um and then yeah that ui for inlets cloud and the product around it can be built in a minimal way get feedback from customers 
show the business problem that's being solved, um, do similar with open VAS. And I think you know, it worked for them and they've got eight, eight, potentially nine figure business now and they're doing really well. Um, it, I think it can work for us as well. And yeah, it, I, I am open VAS limited at the moment, but that's not my vision. My vision is to, to bring more people in we're back to a chicken and egg. So I'm doing my bit and I say like, watch this space because I, I think this will work. Um, solving a problem, having clear message about it. Um, and, you know, meeting, meeting customers where they're at. That's what I think. Yeah, I guess what I was going to say was that exactly that, what you've just said that, um, in, in many of these products or things that you've seen in the past is basically, you know, taking one step at a time. So, so when you, you're developing something, sure, the day will come when uh, you have a team of developers doing all of this thing. But when a, start, a company is starting up, then they start small, two or three developers, do one, two things, eat an elephant step by step, if you like. Um, and as demand grows and the popularity grows, then obviously you hire that that's probably the time to go to for VC funding as well then, because then you, you've already got a proven product, I guess, but not before that, I guess, because that puts too, too much pressure. And like Stephen was saying, might actually take the product into a completely different direction, which is then might be against your own vision. Um, but to Alex, um, you know, again, me coming from a computer science background years and years ago as well, you, you, we, you know, you look at things completely different. You're able to break down these things. But we're, we're, the question I want to ask you is when you built Open FOS, or obviously Inlets was after the, that, did you build it with the intent to sell it? Or did you build it because you were build it because you were trying to build the thing that solved the problem that you saw and you knew it would benefit others and did not expect that it might turn into something that could monetize off of? And I and a reason I say that is because it's two different ways of looking at things, right? Yeah. So as, as I sort of talked about a bit earlier, my my journey has been one of going from scratching an itch. Open FAS was La Lambda and other cloud functions aren't, they're not cloud native in the same way as a container is. You can't build it on your computer, run exactly the same code in the cloud. And I wanted to do that and reuse infrastructure. That was the itch. Yeah. Um, within Let's, the, the team that I, was, that I had at the time, we were an enterprise company, we couldn't use Ngrok. We had to test webhooks for part of OpenFAS. And I was like, well, I'm just going to build that. And I did. And it worked. And then it took off. Um, and in both instances, I hadn't really thought it through as a business. Yeah. But now where I am um, is, okay, an MBA hat on. What is the opportunity? What is the problem we're solving? What is the size of the market? What are they willing to pay? Of that, am I happy with that as a business? And that's where I'm actually reframing it now. Um, within, within Let's, there's tools that provision the little servers that give you the IP. Um, there's two, one that goes into Kubernetes, one that goes on your computer. Both of them work with Inlets Open Source and Pro, which means that people that use the free version can come in and still experience it and they can enhance these tools. There's still community around it, blog posts, uh, meetings and, and conference talks, right? It's not just a, a closed source product, but it gives it a way to play and sort of augmented, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. So I'm going to give you each a chance to kind of sum up. I mean, if we can get back to the original question, um, 
you know, when when looking at open source projects, um, do we have a viable business model to support the development of open source projects or do we not? Um, let me start. Uh, we'll go in reverse order here. Let me uh, start with you, Yup. I have so many nuances I want to bring to the table, but I think we, we haven't found a sustainable model yet. Um, I, I think it's human nature that, you know, if people can get away with free, they will not pay for it. So I think there has to be a hook. There has to be um, a base product that then develops the critical mass of users and make it widely spread and with enough features that get them into the habit of using it and liking it and talking about it. Uh, but once you get to that point, you should also starting, you can start with, a, with, with the idea that to be able to monetize it right from the start saying that, okay, this is my vision, even especially not let people know about those features they're gonna come up later, but then introduce them and charge them for it. And that model is the one, say freemium, but you know, with uh, those two or three tiers model that then gets the earning and support going um, and slowly um, the, the model builds on that. And that is the model that's the viable model, I think, and some con many companies are already using it, I think, successfully. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe there's one single model uh, for these things, but I do believe in the model that Alex just put forward with his inlets type project, that, that not open core, but there is the same version that everyone gets to use. And then there's gonna be these things that are built on top of it that provide a lot more value. There's different use cases, different needs between that hobbyist home user and the person who needs to get, just get a quick win and an enterprise who wants to adopt a tool across their whole infrastructure to get a, a problem solved. And so I think that those kinds of problems can be solved uh, with open source tooling. And I think that the developers who build those things can be supported uh, through the, you know, the money made from that um, there's also other kinds of open source too, but I think when it comes to that that specific question and that specific problem, uh, we've not reached an exact model. And I don't think there will ever be an exact model, but I think there's lots of good options. Yeah, I think for me, there's so many angles we can come at this, you know, from, from you can come from every angle possible and, and tear it down. There, there's what, like we talked about a second ago from a model of, I have a goal of building a product that I'm going to monetize off of, but my roadmap dictates what, portions of that product I'm going to expose to the public as open source, because we all know that once you put it in open source, it does give you feedback that drives the innovation of where the product's going. Um, and being able to think about those things that it addresses this problem today, but I'm already thinking about the other problems that it could solve down the road. Those are the things that I think from a business model perspective, you have to protect. Um, so I'll end with that. Yeah, and sort of as a as a closing thought, I I feel like I've been at this from different perspectives. Maybe I've seen it from each angle, and now I'm sort of ready to admit that open open source is not sustainable, and it isn't a business model. And that's probably where we get ourselves tripped up. It's open source isn't a business model. It just isn't. Um, open source is a great thing. It's a good way of building a community and getting people to contribute. You can have a sustainable business model and you can have some open source component of that. But you, if you want to have a business, you've got to start with something that people are going to buy and pay money for. That's my belief. I mean, whether it's a freemium closed source thing or, or whatever. Um, do you need to have something that's open source to get traction? 
well, I mentioned Basecamp, think of GitHub itself. There's countless other products out there. If it's useful and solves the problem and is at the right, right price point, people will pay for it. Um, but open source has a lot of richness it can bring. The community does, and it isn't necessarily mutually exclusive, which is something that I'm sort of learning as I experiment here and try different things out. Yeah, thanks a lot. And I, I agree, um, you know, it's been a really interesting conversation. And, um, you know, I, I'm still not sure what the business model is for open source. I think from my perspective, if I look at my usage, um, I kind of go to the last thing that Alex was saying, where essentially the, the open source software is one thing, but then there's a service that you're paying for, whether it's a web portal or some sort of, you know, master manager or something like that. You know, I'm thinking of like Home Assistant with Nabucasa. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, a lot of these other things out there that, you know, what do I actually pay for? I'm going to pay for the service. I'm not going to pay for the software. And, um, you know, maybe that's my problem, but uh, I guess that's how I'm approaching it. So I really appreciate your time, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on this uh, really interesting episode of the On-Premise IT Roundtable. If you enjoyed this discussion, remember to subscribe, rate, and review the show in iTunes, since that really helps our visibility. And please do share this show with your friends. This podcast is brought to you by gestaltit.com, your home for IT coverage from across the enterprise. For show notes and more episodes, go to gestaltit.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.